Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on the text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Job 23. It happens to be the lectionary reading for the 20th Sunday after the Pentecost, also known as proper number 23 in the year B cycle of the lectionary. It is the reading for October 10, 2021. In this section of Job, which is roughly toward the center of the entire book, we find Job in a dialogue with three of his friends back and forth about trying to understand the reasonings for his suffering. And in this particular chapter, in chapter 23, Job begins to form his case uh, with God about the suffering that he finds himself enduring. And in the first seven verses of chapter 23, we find that Job is making a very careful legal complaint. As a matter of fact, the way this is framed and the way this is structured in its grammar and the way it's structured in terms of uh, its, its poetic form, it's a very formal well-known form of a legal complaint. So Job is giving voice to his objection as if he were some sort of lawyer. And his desire is to, as we can read, present my case before him. In other words, Job is hoping to present his case before God in verse 4. His expectation is that God would pay attention to him. That's in verse 6. And then finally, his case is this that the upright would argue with him or argue with God. That's in verse 7. So Job's case here assumes that his suffering is unjust. And so he wants to make his case before God so that he can have the argument, if you will, that his suffering is unjust. Remember, the lesson from last week's podcast where I talked about my friend Rabbi Stuart Altshuler who said this about the the book of Job, that Job does not give us answers to questions. It helps us ask the right questions. And the question of why is the foundational assumption here. You know, Job is confident that if he could make his case and plead his case before God, that he would be vindicated, that he could make that case. But Job's quest for justice is ultimately still fueled by addressing this question of why. Why do some people unjustly suffer? Job feels that he has a compelling case to make. And so it's out of this lens of why that Job continues to operate. And to get the answer to the question why, well, is is complicated, and it'll come much later in Job when we get to chapter 38. But for now, Job, this kind of judicial framework, is trying to figure out a way to negotiate his way through with God so that he can make the case that he is suffering unjustly, and Job feels that he's got a strong case to make. And the key passageway here is this for us, that the question of why for us as human beings often becomes consuming and compulsive. To be honest, the question of why often keeps us blind to all other realities. Our sense of fairness and justice dominate. Our our sense of wanting to draw conclusions, to make judgments, 
somehow believing that we have the capacity to understand fairness and justice in a comprehensive manner is a deep need for us. And so when it comes to suffering, oftentimes we simply don't know how to answer the question of why. Why is it that the innocent suffer? Why is it that some people have some ordeals while others seem to have a charmed sort of life? Our obsession and our compulsion to answer the question why at times keeps us blind to all other questions. And perhaps that's the key passageway here for us, that the question of why becomes consuming and compulsive and that there is another question perhaps that we need to be asking that needs to have some breathing room. When we move through the next section of this uh, very short chapter in Job, Job chapter 23, we, we find God's response to Job's legal complaint in verses 8 and 9. The, the silent God says nothing in the face of Job's complaint. It's almost like Job has served God with legal papers, and, and God simply chooses to not even respond to it. And the way Job articulates this, he says in verse 8, Behold, I go forward, and he, God, is not there, and backward, and I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot see him. When he turns to the right, I cannot see him. What Job is trying to articulate here is that he's wants to make his case. He's knocking on the door. He's trying to find a way in which God might respond to him. But no matter where he looks, as verses 8 and 9 tell us, he cannot find God. Job wants to make his case but God is nowhere to be found. Now, this is a, a rich passage of scripture kind of rooted in ancient religious traditions of uh, this uh, world of antiquity. There's a, a, a belief that, that God is actually located somewhere, and for most people, they would point in the ancient world to the Northeast that would somehow address that their deity is that way, whether they were worshipers of uh, the God of Israel that would be articulated much later in this history, in this tradition, or whether it was some other form of deity, if you will. So they would oftentimes locate to the, the mountains of the Northeast, that kind of mythical area north of Mesopotamia, that where it would be where the gods lived. And oftentimes people believed in the ancient world that gods lived on mountains, which was true in the Greek-speaking world, of course. And this is framed because the mountains had some proximity to heaven. So Job is out looking for this God, searching for this God, and can't find this God to respond to him. The text, the text is clear enough that Job cannot find, sense, or perceive God anywhere. But how can this be Job's experience? Is he not versed with a God who is near, a God who is as close as the air we breathe, uh, there's a theological word we use to describe this closeness of God, and it's called the imminence of God with an I, not an E, and the imminence of God. It's the imminence of God that God has this immediacy, this closeness. And it's this closeness that is elusive to Job. He doesn't sense it. He doesn't perceive it. He wants to make his legal case before God, but God is nowhere to be found. So what makes this passage a struggle is the issue of location. Where is God? And, and the, the Old Testament uses this metaphor often, that God is somewhere on a mountain. Elijah uses it in 1 Kings uh, when he tells the story of the battle of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, Elijah 
mocks uh, the priest of Baal, saying that so maybe their god has gone on vacation, or maybe their god has gone to the bathroom somewhere. Who knows where this god is? Job is trying to find God to make his case. And in a sense, the objective, in other words, the, the case Job is trying to make defines the location he's looking for God in. Let me unpack that just a minute. So if Job wants to make a legal case, then that means he wants to engage God in a court where there's a hearing. So if God is either his opponent in court or if God is the judge with almighty and arbitrary power, where would one look for that God? Where would one search for that God if you want to make a legal argument? Of course, you'd go looking in courthouses uh, would be our equivalent of it. So what I'm saying here is that Job's objective in what he's trying to do defines the place where he's looking for God. So instead of trying to look for God in a very kind of open sort of way, Job is looking for God in a very defined sort of way. And that's that opens up the key passageway for us. The God we seek is often not where we are looking. The God we seek is often not where we're looking. This word is hard, hard for us to hear, that God is at work pulling and stretching and developing character and charisms or gifts. And so oftentimes the way in which we live our life spiritually with God is like Job. We're looking for God in a defined space. So our, is our work one of looking for God or is our work waiting for God? Is our work searching for God or is our work stillness for God? Is God really far off? Is God really hidden? Perhaps God is in us, in others. God is often not found when searched for. And that's because oftentimes we're looking in the wrong place. It's somewhat akin to the correction we often make of folks who are so used to wearing their eyeglasses for a moment on their forehead that they forget they're there. Sometimes the thing we're looking for is closer than we could possibly even imagine. But because we're so intent and so focused on looking where we want to look, that we want to talk to the God of fairness, we want to talk to the God of judgment, it's hard then for us to find a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of closeness to us. Well, Job's experience gives rise to the bulk of chapter 23, verses 10 to 17, which is an expression of his disappointment with God. You see, Job presses now not his case anymore in these verses, but what Job presses is now his resignation. So rather than self-pity, Job affirms, quote, my foot has held on to his path. The only fallback Job has when God is unresponsive to his search for a court in which he might have his hearing is to just simply fall back on Job's experience of being a good guy and an upright person. This is core to the story of Job, that disappointment with God flows from consistently always looking for the God of justice. 
Disappointment with God flows from always looking for the God of justice. Why is he disappointed? Again, this is back to the why question. He thinks he deserves better than what's happened to him. He reflects on his life and how he's walked with God, how he's been a good person, an upright person. My foot has held on to his path. He looks back in his life and sees a person of virtue and value and worthiness. Thus, he believes he's deserving of something or at least not deserving of what he's currently engaged in. And the way he faces this reality is with deep resignation that I cannot understand why this is happening to me. And so his fallback is not only on his own experience of a good person, but he falls back on this statement that we read down almost at the very end of the chapter when we get into chapter 23, where Job says some very interesting things. In verse 14, for example, he says, for he carries out what is destined for me, and many such destinies are with him. He falls back in his disappointment on a theological projection. And here's the theological projection he puts on it, that God, in God's infinite and arbitrary power, has destined me for this, this suffering. And it's not for me to know why. I just need to accept it. This is, in many ways, theologically speaking, what's called a classically, I call it, Calvinistic frame. In other words, in the in the face of the unexplained, in the face of mysterious engagement, in the, the face of uncertainty, the fallback is that God has destined everything. God has put everything in order. God has planned everything out. Everything is happening according to God's plan, and I just need to go along with it. You see, grief's only asset is capitulation, to roll over, that somehow God is a cosmic despot to Job. Listen to even what he says at the end of chapter 23. He says, I would be terrified at his presence. Job says, the Almighty has terrified me. He has this sense of God being kind of this uh, cosmic lever puller that has destined everything. And it's the only way Job can make sense of the world in which he lives. Language is important here in the text when when Job refers to God. In the opening part of Job and in the closing part of Job, beginning in chapter 1 and then uh, disappearing all the way until chapter 38, um, God is referred to in a generic title, uh, the Hebrew word El or Elohim. It's just the generic form of God. The covenant name for God that we often uh, use four letters to name it, Yahweh, is at the beginning of Job and at the end of Job. But here in this middle section, this is a very impersonal sort of deity that's engaged uh, with Job, or at least that Job is engaging with. And that language is important because there's this sense in which Job has just kind of rolled over in his disappointment, his anger, his frustration of not understanding. And that opens up our final key passageway, that the journey of knowing God passes through every emotion. You see, our path in life is not around suffering or around grief or around disappointment. We actually come to know the truth of God and the truth of ourselves through these things. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not about 
God as an evasive God, a God that's making it difficult to be found. It's about defeating the lies we tell ourselves about us and God. We have to realize that even in the first story of the Bible, beginning in Genesis chapter 2, that when we're confronted with our own guilt, our own suffering, our own shame, just like the story of Adam and Eve, we're the ones in hiding, not the other way around. Our path is not around things. It is through things. And there, there we will find a God who suffers with us. Job cannot see it yet in this story. He eventually will. We usually miss it too because we're so consumed with the question of why me, we never get around to the question of where is God in this right now. That's it for this week. Many thanks to the Reverend George Ed Bennett and the fantastic congregation at the First United Methodist Church of Lodi. They are using this podcast as a part of their sermon series on the book of Job. I hope all of you at First UMC and Lodi are blessed by passages as you prepare to receive the sermon, not just this Sunday, but over the next several weeks. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.